Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a flight from India. Given the implications of India's actions on the safety of our diplomats, we have facilitated their safe departure from India. Dozens of Canadian diplomats are pulled as New Delhi moves ahead with a plan to pull diplomatic immunity. What will this mean for the future of Canada-India relations? Coming up, we will speak with former Conservative Minister Chris Alexander. And... Everyone is in agreement that the deaths of innocents in that hospital in Gaza never should have happened. Standing with Israel while denouncing the death of Palestinians. We'll speak to our political panel about the political tightrope Ottawa is trying to walk. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Michael Serapio. We begin tonight with 41 Canadian diplomats and 42 of their dependents who've now been pulled from India, flown out last night after New Delhi announced its intention to strip them of their diplomatic immunity. A unilateral revocation of diplomatic privileges and immunities is contrary to international law. It is a clear violation of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. And threatening to do so is unreasonable and escalatory. If we allow the norm of diplomatic immunity to be broken, no diplomats anywhere on the planet would be safe. So for this reason, we will not reciprocate. Now, Canada-India relations have been strained since last month when the Prime Minister accused agents of the Indian government of possible involvement in the murder of a Sikh leader in British Columbia. Ottawa had reportedly been in talks with New Delhi about the diplomats, but those talks now seem to be over. Well, to get a better understanding of what is at stake here, we are joined now by Chris Alexander. In addition to being a past minister for immigration, Mr. Alexander is also a former diplomat and former ambassador for Canada to Afghanistan. Chris, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Michael. Listen, as you know, Canada and India have history together. The two countries united by people, united by families. But now this, how troubling is this development? I think it's very troubling. It's unprecedented in our bilateral relations with a major partner uh, in any time, in any historical memory that 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 I can bring to mind. I mean, think of the two Michaels uh, and that big issue which loomed large over our relations with China. It never led to this kind of meltdown and loss of Canadian diplomatic presence on such a scale. Uh, in China, even though arguably our, our relations with China are, and, and, and allied relations with China are even worse. Um, so this is disappointing. I think there's been uh, mishandling of issues on both sides. And it's unfortunate that the people who will pay the price aren't uh, the government ministers we see on both sides, the high officials who, who have to pronounce on this. It will be, uh, you know, ordinary Canadians uh, with links to India who can't get visas to go there now because of uh, measures India has implemented and uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Indian students, visitors, family members who want to come to Canada um, and, and uh, won't have the same level of service. I'm sure Canada will do its best 
to adapt to the new situation, but it's going to be hard. This is this is a this is a big uh, blow to our presence in India and, and a disappointing result all around. And and you say the the result of mishandling. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean there are two issues that are very serious that have come out of this. Um, one we've been aware of for a very long time, which is that Khalistani extremism, including in its terrorist form, exists. Uh, there's long been a concentration of uh, individuals who were pursuing this agenda, uh, you know, up to and including uh, terrorist acts as, as, as notorious and devastating as the Air India attack, still the largest attack, uh, you know, terrorist attack on Canadians. Uh, and, and Canada hasn't uh, dealt with this issue. Um, even in our time in government, uh, there were things we could have done that we probably uh, didn't do that might have brought this issue uh, under control. In the last seven or eight years, it's clearly gotten out of control. It's become an even larger uh, diplomatic uh, irritant for India uh, and, and remains so. On the other hand, there is this very serious allegation, uh, and you and I haven't seen um, the substance of it because it's classified. Canadians haven't seen the substance of it. Um, that uh, an extrajudicial judicial killing and assassination was took place with the involvement of, or, and certainly the knowledge of Indian officials here on Canadian territory. So both issues are serious. Both need to be dealt with uh, for two democracies that have deep relations, as you say, going back decades. There was no reason for uh, those two issues to result in this kind of meltdown. And so I think there's been overreaction and mishandling on both sides. Uh, and there's going to have to be uh, a new approach taken uh, to, to get beyond this so that further escalation, further deterioration uh, is taken off the table as quickly as possible. Chris, I appreciate the time as always. Thank you for it. Thanks, Mike. Well, to the issue of the Middle East now, as the Prime Minister was asked about the Gaza hospital blast today. Up until now, the government not saying who it thinks is responsible. But this is what we heard from Justin Trudeau. Everyone is in agreement that the deaths of innocents in that hospital in Gaza never should have happened. But we are taking the necessary time to look carefully at everything and rapidly, of course, before we draw any final conclusions about what happened. We are taking this extremely seriously because of all the intensity with which people are living this horrific loss of life. Now, initial reports from Gazan authorities did blame Israel, but both Israel and the U.S. say their intelligence point to a rocket fired by a Palestinian fighter, the target originally being Israel, but it ended up hitting the hospital. Well, with more, we're now joined by our political panel. Susan Smith is principal with Blue Sky Strategy Group. Tim Powers is chairman of Suma Strategies and Anne McGrath, the national director for the NDP. Hello to the three of you. Hi. Listen, it's probably worthwhile to play what we heard from the Prime Minister earlier this week to, to start our discussion, and then we'll, we'll do a, a bit of a compare and contrast, if you will. But let's play again uh, Justin Trudeau from earlier in the week. 
The uh, news coming out of, uh, of Gaza is uh, horrific and absolutely unacceptable. International humanitarian and, and international law needs to be respected uh, in, in this and in all cases. There are rules around wars, and it's not acceptable. To hit Is the hospital body? Now, again, uh, that was the Prime Minister from a few days ago. That comment having uh, some people accusing the Prime Minister of blaming Israel. You know, I'm wondering, what does the incident say to you about the kind of tightrope that Justin Trudeau and really Canada is walking right now? Uh, Susan, I'll get you to start us out. Yeah, I think the I think the the world is walking a tightrope. Um, we're dealing with a terrorist organization, Hamas. We're dealing with a country, Israel, that's defending itself. We're dealing with um, an internet full of misinformation. We're dealing with health authorities in Gaza that are run by Hamas. So I think the prime minister's statement today at the CARICOM conference was very important uh, and builds on the statement earlier this week. Canada, Canada, like its allies, the, the UK is doing the same thing, is carefully looking at the evidence to, to make sure that um, we have all the right information. But regardless, any kinds of missile um, missiles landing on hospitals is wrong. It's against the, the rule of law. So that's a rule of law and international law. That's what's the terrible thing in this instance. And so I think the Prime Minister is walking the line that Canada has to walk on that and that Canadians expect him to walk, which is gather all the evidence and, and then make a make a comment on either side. But his caught the, the true and right comment is that no rockets, no missiles should land on hospitals. Hospitals are safe places and that's part of international law. Mm -hmm. And Tim, what do you say? Because, you know, Susan's saying that the Prime Minister is building on what he said of a few days ago, but of course that initial comment did get him into trouble in certain circles. He started right. Look, I, I think he and, and every other political leader got it right on uh, how this all started a couple of weeks ago with Hamas's terror attack. I don't think he's walking a tightrope. I hope he's, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, I hope he's not being influenced too much by domestic politics. Because as Canada gathers information, you have to wonder where they're going to gather it from. Likely they're going to gather it from the five eyes, which means they will be seeing that American intelligence and British intelligence and other intelligence. I don't think we have the assets on the ground to gather our own intelligence. So I, 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 I think, you know, he, he there's probably enough evidence so far, but maybe he just wants to wait further. I don't think he can wait too long. He needs to tuck in with the U.S. and Israel here. The other point I'd make, Michael, uh, around this as well is that, you know, Susan's bang on on international law, but I, I think it's a bit of a hollow uh, point when you're dealing with terrorist organizations like Hamas and other uh, apparent actors in uh, Israel and in Gaza who are not nation states, who don't give a damn about international law. Uh, and probably could care less based on information that we've seen about uh, where they store weapons. Long suggested by many credible news sources that Hamas in particular uses hospitals and other places where the public gathers and uses them as a human shield. So I don't think we, I think we have to be careful as Canadians and as the Canadian Prime Minister as well to fall into propaganda traps that come out during terrible wars like this. Mm -hmm. the, the whole fog of war issue. And what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's that old saying that the first casualty of war is the truth. And I think that uh, that's going to be probably more the case 
in this particular situation than even previous uh, previous ones. There is a massive amount of misinformation and disinformation out there, uh, and mo uh, many of the social media uh, sources are not reliable. I mean, the space formerly known as Twitter is absolutely impossible to trust these days um, uh, for anything. And in all of that barrage of, of misinformation and disinformation, political leaders everywhere in Canada and everywhere else are being asked to and, and are expected to comment very quickly on things uh, that may or may not be uh, fully verified. So, so I think it is a tricky situation. Um, I, I think that, you know, a, as we move along, we will see that uh, there will be more, unfortunately, more circumstances like this where it's not immediately obvious uh, what what the truth is about about something, uh, what the information is, what the intelligence intelligence is, and uh, you know I, I think that one of the things that Canada can do and 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 other you know good actors in all of this uh, need to be doing is to be calling for things like the humanitarian corridor, humanitarian assistance, a ceasefire, um, uh, 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 adherence to international law, um, uh, you know, prosecution of war crimes that will be, uh, I'm sure, uh, a, a big feature of this as well. So I think that, the, that for political leaders, it's going to be really important to, to verify uh, their information, but that is hard to do right now. Uh, for instance, on the hospital bombing, uh, some of the sources were places like Associated Press, which is generally a credible uh, you know, accepted to be a credible source of news, but uh, I, I think it's going to be hard as we move forward. Uh, we're going to be getting a lot of a lot of reports that may just be um, innuendo, rumors, misinformation, disinformation. Yeah, well, well, certainly, as you say, so many uh, avenues and venues from which people are getting information. Which one is correct? Which one is accurate? Is something that you know people need to put their critical thought to. But I do wonder at this point, some two weeks after the initial attack on Israel, the humanitarian crisis that we're now seeing in Gaza, what more do you think the government can be doing, should be doing, Susan? Yeah, look, I mean, it's uh, the, the the terrorist attack on Israel was October seventh. 12 days later, there's a body count in the thousands uh, on both sides of that Gaza border, of that Israeli border. Uh, and that's that's a very a tragic uh, and terrible thing to happen. Canada's gotten its citizens, uh, the citizens who want to come out of Israel through the flights. They've managed to, to get that in place to get people who choose to come out. The trickier situation is getting those Canadians who wish to come out of Gaza out because there has been no land border open that is safe for people to cross. So they're working to get humanitarian aid in and to get Canadians out. There was a bus, at least, that left uh, Ramallah in the West Bank for Canadians who wanted to get onto that. So there's a couple of things. There are Canadian hostages that are people that are believed to be Canadian hostages. There's humanitarian aid, food, medicine, uh, water that needs to get in in a safe way to civilians, um, that Canada can do that. And Canada can work as a middle power to try and just, um, you know, do its best to, to be the person who goes between countries, right? Um, we have lots of allies around the world and in that part of the world, and we can contribute through our Five Eyes and our other, our diaspora network to um, trying to get Canadians out safely and make sure that um, the terrorist situation isn't exacerbated in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, Tim? 
Uh, I, I think adding to what Susan said, I think where we do have influence, because we can have a debate, it's not the time for it right now, about whether our influence around the world is waning or not. Um, and you see the U.S. fully engaged, British Prime Minister is there today, and I think those are the right things. But I think where we do have influence that isn't questionable is in some of the larger international organizations, uh, the Red Cross and others, that could play a very helpful role here. Um, Canada does have experience managing dis disaster, uh, less so war, Haiti and, and, and other places. Uh, perhaps we can lend that expertise and assistance there, uh, which may be a more practical thing for us to do along with some of the things Susan has talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, and to you. Well, I just, I mean, I think that there's an, a real urgency in getting that humanitarian assistance and humanitarian corridor and ceasefire uh, underway. Uh, right now, you know, there are, as Susan's right, they, like the Canadian government was able to get Canadians who wanted to leave uh, Israel to get to get them out. But this tricky situation is the Canadians that are in Gaza and there is no way out. Um, so it looks now, at least from what I've heard, that, that, that there are trucks going to be allowed in or to get in with some uh, water and fuel and, and food uh, finally, which is like, it's unbelievable to me that, it, that, that, that people have been going without for this long. Um, but, but there still doesn't appear to be a way out. And I think that that's got to be a focus of the, of the pressure right now is to make sure that people can leave and for the Canadian government to also to be very focused on making sure that Canadians that are trapped there can leave. Um, you know, like it is, you know, there's all the effort that has to be put into the freeing of the hostages for sure. But um, uh, there are hundreds of uh, Canadians in, in, in Gaza that, that need to be, that need to find a way out. Yeah. Uh, listen, of course, we're going to keep tracking the story uh, long uh, from being over. But before you go, I, I did want to get your thoughts on something that happened uh, in the House on Wednesday. I'm quickly running out of time, so I'm going to ask you to quickly get your response. But for people who don't know, uh, the Speaker did delay the usual start time of question period to make a statement on decorum, something that the opposition Conservatives did not take kindly to. Uh, take a listen. The question period will follow immediately question. after uh, this thing. Question period. The government is here to serve Parliament, not the other way around. We ask that you allow us to proceed with question period. The Speaker has the choice as to when to start question period. You are a servant of the House. You should follow the standing order. I'm going to continue with this statement. I think it's important for all members to understand this. Okay, again, quickly, but was Greg Fergus right to do what he did, or should he have found a different time to do what he did? Uh, Susan, with you first. Good for Greg Fergus. People have commented for years at the absolute deterioration of decorum in the House of Commons, and I think the response and what the clips didn't capture is the hooting, hollering, and uh, yelping from the opposition benches that is precisely what Speaker Fergus was seeking to address. People have been grandstanding even more than normal in question period. And he basically was laying down the rules saying, or reminding people what the rules are, saying, we're not gonna tolerate this. We need to bring respect and decorum back to the House of Commons. So good on Speaker Fergus. Okay, Tim. Well, breaking news, Michael, I was in Newfoundland Labrador yesterday. Nobody gave a damn about this story because it's question period, which perhaps is the bigger story here. Um, I, I, I take a slightly different approach. I think what Greg is trying to do is important, and I think um, he has the right to do it. But he may have wanted in this case, and I don't know because, as I say, it wasn't a big story out where I was, 
may have wanted to condition the audience that he was going to do this, maybe talk to the House leaders. He doesn't have to, but I think he could have made it less acrimonious and perhaps more beneficial in that regard. But the initiative is worth taking. I will give him that. Mm -hmm. And your thoughts on it? The question period gets worse and worse every every year uh, and, and it is probably uh, it's never been as bad as it has been lately and and for the decades that i have been around here every time there's a speaker election the main thing that that is that the main thing that is asked of the uh, candidates that are running for speaker is what they're going to do about decorum so it's one of those situations where everybody wants something to happen but there are roadblocks to actually uh having more civility in the house so i, I think i mean i think Tim is right. There might have been a way to uh, to to negotiate with, or at least inform, or give a heads up to the parties, uh, to the caucuses, that that this was going to happen. Uh, but uh, I mean, what I want to see is I, I want to see what is actually going to be done to make sure that question period is not an embarrassment and is actually something where you can hold the government to account, where you don't have to be ashamed to bring school children in to watch our parliament in action, and where uh, where people can finish their sentences and don't get shouted out uh, the way that has been the way it's been happening at least lately and probably for quite a long time. Yeah, isn't that the list? Now, sense? Michael, you got to call out misinformation here quickly. Okay. Anne said she's been here for decades. She's only 25. How is that possible? <laughs> we will get our researchers on it, Tim, and we're going to get back to you as soon as we have the answer. Don't have them research how long I've been here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and I both. Listen, uh, Susan, Tim, uh, Anne, thank you for this. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Canada's immigration system came under greater scrutiny today as the Auditor General found huge backlogs for people hoping to make Canada home. This is especially true for refugees who could be waiting years before finding out their fate. We're now joined by the Auditor General of Canada, Karen Hogan. Karen, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Now, you know, during the pandemic, certainly we know that immigration backlogs were created, but we're now past the emergency phase of the pandemic, and yet these backlogs are still there. Just how bad have things actually gotten? Well, we actually uh, embarked on this audit to, to answer the question of what progress has the department made in um, eliminating uh, backlogs and reducing wait times. And what we found is while they made some progress over 2022, many applicants are still waiting uh, a very long time. And in fact, refugees are waiting the longest, who are arguably some of the most vulnerable, waiting approximately three years. So three years. Why is this happening? That, that sounds very disconcerting, especially when you talk about a refugee situation where people are so desperate to find safety. I think there's many things that contribute to why people are, are waiting as long as they are to hear about their permanent resident application. Um, it starts really with immigration levels. Um, and then and then you look at the processing of an application. And there are things that are within the department's control and things that are outside the department's control. Uh, when it comes to those things internal, what we found is that there was really some inefficient processing uh, of applications and some some uh, management of files that could have been done better. So for example, uh, if we looked at um, the amount of uh, applications sent to two particular offices, if we looked at Tanzania and Rome, they have roughly the same amount of individuals that work at processing permanent resident applications in those offices, yet the Tanzania office has five times the workload. 
And the department was just not doing an analysis to understand the capacity of that office, and yet was still routing applications there. So those people are just going to wait longer. So clearly a disconnect between resources and the demand. But, you know, it had me thinking about the government's own immigration targets, because last year the government did meet its own uh, targets, uh, bringing in more than 431,000 permanent residents. But as you know, they now want to welcome 500,000 permanent residents by 2025. Given the current backlog, in your view, is that even possible? Well, I think we should start off with recognizing that there are thousands of public servants who process hundreds of thousands of immigration applications every single year. And they've been dealing with an increase in immigration levels for many years and are meeting those targets consistently. Um, but in order to sort of reduce the, the, the backlog, um, you do need to understand uh, it, whether you need extra resources or whether you just need to be more effective at what you're doing. And I think that's the place where the department needs to start now, is to really honor the commitment they made in 2016 to understand the capacity of every office that they have, and then to allocate the workload to match that capacity. Um, but then to also understand if there are any other of their processes that are contributing to that to the wait time. Mm -hmm. So so a, a, a redeployment and then an assessment. Uh, listen, before you're done here, Karen, I, I also wanted to bring up another report that you released today because uh, one report really caught my eye and that had to do with the IT systems that are used to deliver CPP, uh, OAS and EI to Canadians. And you say they are at risk of failing and you even raise the specter of the Phoenix Pay system that, as we know, has been such a mess for civil servants. Uh, what's the issue there? Well, in, in this audit, we actually looked at the, th the modernization and the transformation of three IT systems that support the delivery uh, of those critical benefits to millions of Canadians. Uh, these systems are somewhere between the ages of 20 and 60 years old. Um, and every day that a, that a system that that's old goes on unmodernized, it increases the risk that it will fail. Um, and we thought it was important to make sure that the government had learned from some of the lessons from the Phoenix Pay system. And while we did see that there was better oversight, more complete and accurate information, I am concerned because this project is running into delays, cost overruns, and some staffing issues that decision makers will will not learn from the lesson from Phoenix and that they uh, will prioritize budget and timelines and forget the most critical part of transforming these three critical programs, which is making it more user-friendly and accessible to Canadians. Because let's face it, almost every Canadian at some point in their life will likely call on a benefit from one of these three systems. So it's important that they uh, are, are functioning properly for future generations. Karen, I always appreciate the time. Thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Karen Hogan is Canada's Auditor General. And that is Primetime Politics for this Thursday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Stay with us. Estée Bégin avec l'Essentiel is up next.